Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick advert before the show. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, is out now in bookshops and also I will be touring around the UK. In fact, I am touring around the UK at the moment every single day until the 17th of December, so I may well be coming to a town near you. Thanks, Robin, and welcome to part two of this episode of Book Shambles with Robin and Josie Long substitute Alan Moore and Barney Farmer. Uh, if you missed part one, you can go back onto the Cosmic Shambles website or the Book Shambles podcast feed and listen to that. And uh, when this part two starts in just a minute, don't think you're uh, having deja vu or, or you've done something wrong. We're playing about 20 seconds of last week's episode, the end of that. Uh, we'll play at the start to lead you into the uh, part two. But just before we get to that, a quick reminder of some of our upcoming events. We're at QED this coming weekend with the Space Shambles quiz on Friday night, doing book shambles on Saturday uh, with uh, Sue Nelson, the guest, talking to Robin then. And then on Sunday, uh, I will be doing an in-conversation event uh, on the main stage with Jay Wilgoose Esquire of Public Service Broadcasting. Then on the 22nd of October, we will be at Manchester Science Festival with Sophie Scott and Charles Fernahoe uh, for a Book Shambles Live, Robin hosting that one. Then November 1st at King's Place with Robin and Josie and Grace Petrie and Stuart Lee and Philippa Perry for the I'm a Joke and So Are You launch event. And, of course, Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is coming up this December back again uh, called Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People this year instead of Nine Lessons and Carols for Godless People. Slight name change, same kind of uh, chaos that you would expect. Four nights at King's Place, December 14 and 15 and 19 and 20. Robin hosting all nights uh, with lots of uh, brilliant special guests there from Dr. Carl to Helen Chersky to the Octavia Poetry Collective, uh, Joshua Idahan, uh, Hannah Fry, Adam Rutherford, uh, Dean Burnett, lots and lots of different people on the bill. Go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to check out the dates and lineups for those. And as always, all the profits from those shows will be going to charity. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. None of this is possible without your pledges. Uh, and there's an extended version of this episode and all episodes uh, when you sign up for any pledge amount on Patreon. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can do that. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. And we should also mention uh, the blog network that we have uh, launched recently. We're taking submissions and pitches for that. Uh, so if you'd like to contribute something to the blog network, uh, go on to cosmicshambles.com slash blogs and uh, have a look at how you can pitch to us on that page. There's a little form you can fill out. We would love to hear from you. Now on to part two of this episode. Here's Robin, Alan and Barney. The result of the, you know, uh, joyous, wonderful people who... Uh, 
all love David Attenborough. You know, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, you'll always. It's good to know. That also, it makes you feel better because sometimes you look and you go, Jesus Christ, aren't there an enormous number of really horrible people? And I don't think I'm as horrible. So you might be a little bit. There's your blue blanket of comfort as well. It's still, I mean, I'm sure you know there are people <coughs> who would find you absolutely thoroughly objectionable, and 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 I too, and even even Alan, if we we can oh, believe God. that. It's the, sure they're out there. Some people are just unreasonable. <laughs> well, you learn something new every day. I think that's what shocked people, isn't it? That they've got they thought that maybe everything was nicer than it was, and if you have telepathy. Which is, I mean, it's basically what I said. You know, I, I talked about this in a show that I did. Be going, you know, when I was a kid, I watched Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World and read The Unexplained magazine. I used to think, wouldn't it be amazing if we all had telepathy, if we all knew what everyone thought? And now we have Twitter and it seems less encouraging mm. than we might have hoped it to yeah. be. And I think that's the thing. If you tap into every human mind or every human mind with access to social, you're definitely going to find out that we, we, we haven't got a kind of mean average of altruism and kind. You know, people are. A, a, a sort of grey cloud of of morality. I suppose Twitter's and... like a kind of Tourette's telepathy that sort of uh, it's not that all of our thoughts get broadcast, it's just our most unpleasant ones, you know There's undoubtedly people that use it as a, as a form of primal scream yeah. uh, therapy uh, yeah. I think that's possibly uh, fair to say. Also you don't stop it, it's so immediate that things that if you actually had taken out a pen and started to write down, you'd then go, oh, hang on, what am I doing that for? But it's immediacy, the fact the phone is in your hand or whatever it is, means, again, you're getting, I think, as you say, something a little bit more primal. Also, I think that, that that primal screen analogy is probably a really good one. I mean, like, the primal screen, that was Art Yanov, who first came out with that, and I can remember in the 70s, there were a lot of people, because it was a new thing, there were a lot of people who were convinced that this must be the deliverance of um, yeah. of the species, and so there were a lot of people who would get into primal screaming, basically letting out all of your inner pain, which I suppose is what a lot of these people are doing on social media. Yeah. But the thing was that a number of those people, it really didn't help them. It didn't get anything out of them. It just made them addicted to screaming. I think a sore throat. Yeah, it would give them a very sore throat and. Sort of probably a lot of unfriendly neighbours. <laughs> you know, it's. But I think we keep our therapy down. Yeah. <laughs> but when people, I give them the opportunity <laughs> to vent and find that they like it. It's yeah. not that. Oh well, I've got all that out of my system now. It's oh, I, I enjoyed that. Let's see if I can vent about something else. And the actual act of purging this stuff actually becomes could... addictive. Like a dynamo. you got to kick some of it in your system. That's how the system works as well. We don't yeah, let it all out. Well, that's it. I mean, what would you run on if it wasn't anger and resentment? I mean, I'm speaking <laughs> purely for myself. <laughs> but sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, you know. Some of that is some one light of the benefits and... of, of actually having a view of the ultimate futility of human existence that when you get something nice, like a little cartoon or somebody who said something human and clever and funny yeah. or something, then that is going to be so much more valuable against a backdrop of uh, yeah, well, yeah, our current backdrop only invites bleak pessimism 
So that makes these things, I think, much more valuable. Yeah, it, stand it, out. it can be. I mean, pessimism can be an engine for for sort of optimism. It's like that. Um, I can't I'm really not going to try and it. prove that, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Han, Hans Rosling's book Factfulness, which I think we talked about before, yeah. you know, which is where he just said, "I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a possibilist." <laughs> and, I, and I do think if, I was talking about this with Josie uh, the other day, who's one day going to come back and do this podcast. And uh, unless you you may win the audition, actually, the you audition so? for the new Josie. It's going well so far. It's going well so far. It's going to be you know just as Doctor Who. Uh, becomes a female Time Lord. It's possible that Josie, Josie Long's reincarnation becomes, may is, well become uh, a, a bearded man. man from Northampton. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. the ideal way to get your P45, even on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that, Josie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we were talking about that when she was doing one of her, her shows, for instance, where she talked about a breakup in it, and uh, and it was one that, you know, it was a bad time. And then there was a point where she suddenly went, why am I still talking about this on on stage? Because I'm over this now and I'm going out with someone else and everything's very happy. And I keep returning. And I think the ability to return to the negative through media, through social media, in the, like the, the tour that I'm doing at the moment, Chaos of Delight, is an, an hour and a half of me talking about things that I found out that I find joyous and fat. And by making me go through, right, this show is a happy show and there's going to be happy things in it, it actually, I come out of it and go, oh, I'm in quite a good mood now as well. Yeah. Whereas that that bit before about the primal scream, you know, people have the, the research currently in terms of things like a stress ball, or one of the good things to do if you're in a bad mood is uh, go into your house and get get a series of pillows and beat them repeatedly with a baseball bat. Punching research, it doesn't get it out. It actually brings it up. Yeah, and and so a lot of those things that we're told are getting out of the system are actually keeping it. Just going. Oh yes, I'm now addicted to being furious with my baseball bat. Yeah, just yeah. making it a part of your everyday experience, I suppose. It's, um... I mean, I've often thought, I mean, I've got a kind of a hypothesis which isn't going to work um, because it's too inexact, but I've been thinking maybe the richness of the imagination is in direct proportion to the poverty of the childhood. Now, I don't think that that is exact enough to be applied but I think that there might be something in it mm. and I think this relates to what you were saying that in the past um, we didn't have our imaginative needs fulfilled upon the instant um, most of us we hadn't got the resources to fulfill our imaginative needs as a child growing up the I couldn't you know my parents couldn't afford any expensive toys there weren't a lot of them so the ones that you had got you had to invest all of your imagination into to make them into something interesting yes yeah, so which it's... was um useful in in my circumstances you know i i tend to think that this might be one of the problems with the present day that we are slowly breeding out um imaginative creators well that's what we're going to find out aren't we that's the intro because we, we we talked about this i think when i interviewed you for the book and we did that thing about imagination and you were talking about the necessity of boredom 
and yeah. and that moment as well of of the fact that you wouldn't have a figurine for the TV show that you'd just seen, you know, the Jerry Ants or whatever, you might have though something that was a little bit like blue tack, and you yeah. might have a, you know one of those little green soldiers that's on a, a slightly uneven base yeah. that always falls over. Stingray was might... a bar of soap in the bath. Yeah, so <laughs> you, yeah, you transform the sponge, the soap, the flannel, whatever it might be. We used to draw them and cut them out, and then yeah. play with them. Me and my brother upon a sheet of paper which we'd drawn a background on we'd move these little submarines around and um yeah and it was great well that certainly might explain the problem with things like the number of uh tv shows and films i I don't know when it actually really starts but like i would say somewhere around between star wars and he-man is the moment where the things that children love someone went hang on a minute and then so we've got actually got a half hour advert or a 90 minute advert or a two-hour advert Mm. And so you see in certain things that I've I've heard that you know some of the kids shows like someone was complaining that uh, what's he called who's, who's Bob the Builder they've added loads of other things because then that means there's another kind of truck that you can buy and another, all mm-hmm. of these characters and so if everything then becomes attached to well in this story we have to write at least five more things that could be turned into a new toy yeah yeah, yeah. then that that kind of restricts and then yeah. during the kids games. Um, where is there any space at all for the kids' imagination? They're not having to pretend that this completely inappropriate toy soldier is Bob the Builder. Um, They're not having to come up with the whole thing themselves. A lot of these toys, they even speak catchphrases. Um, So you don't even have to imagine what your little toy soldiers are saying to each other. There's, there's that element to, uh, of this as well to me the, to, to the naked eye somebody just stood over there just wandered in could just think oh look there's three three old guys over there being nostalgic about their old childhoods and if this podcast does as well as Last of the Summer Wine which is I think it's nearest equivalent actually yes I'll, yeah I yeah, feel that's... very much this is uh... but it's, it's less the thing I mean I'm not we're never going to get kids to cut out the toys anymore and um But you see, I'm not sure. I I, I disagree, though, because even though my son's got lots of things like that, two that one there's things like Minecraft, which is all building. They go into a world and they build the world. And two, even though he has got access to lots of these things, he still likes making his own comics, and he still likes drawing things and creating odd creatures and building stuff. So I think actually there is still something innate that even if you go, here are all the things exactly as they look on the television uh, series you've seen. I I and again. It's me being the optimistic one, but I, I think there's still a desire. If you are a creative kid, then you still have a desire to go. Oh, it's fine that I've got this, but I need to now build it into something else. I need to. Uh, I, turn... I, was, I was immensely heartened to meet Archie. It was great. I mean, like it's the first time I've met him, and I think I dug out some Jack Kirby commandy comic from the 70s that I just thought you know I'll, I'll give him that as a little present because Robin has said that he, he likes comics so I, I gave it to him and I was really apologetic I said look this is from the 70s so it will probably seem a bit weird and old fashioned but you know uh, it's Jack Kirby and, and and Archie was saying oh well yeah I mean but that's not an old comic to me he says I, I read comics from like the 30s and 40s and 50s. <laughs> so, so that was me told. Well, you know, maybe and... that that thing is there is that latent creativity in us, which these might, if for those kids, and it sounds like you, you know, Archie might be lucky enough 
to have that as a kind of a, an almost a reflex that desire to be kind of engage with culture and create things of his own uh, then this is probably a golden age for kids like that because there's this great wealth of material and, and, and this great wealth of history which they can access quite easily and it's more like um, um, it's it's kind of that thing where when there was three T, I watched World in Action from a very early age. Probably because I like the theme tune. It's a um, great theme tune, and it's got you know you know about the, the the bitter history of it as well. The two guys who wrote it. If you go on YouTube and you watch the full versions of uh, the World in Action, there's two How guys who go again. No, no, that's, that's weekend that, that world. That, that, that it goes what what's how? Yeah, it's uh, it's got a kind of it's got a big keyboard section, hasn't it? Yeah, it's a piece of prog rock. I think it's like a sort of middle eight of. Uh, yeah, because the one I was oh, doing was called... loads of loads of world oh, action. How does it go? Well, oh, weekend world stuck in my head. It gets in the way of that's, world that's in action. That's Nantucket Sleigh Ride, I think. By, yeah, it is uh, Nantucket Sleigh Ride, and, and it's a brilliant bit of music because actually most of that song is really slow and boring, and it literally is like the guitarist going, "Ah, for fuck's sake!" Oh, they have it. Doing. It sounds like a and next thing, Brian Walden pops up. So we can. <laughs> world, let's, oh, hang on. We world, world in action. Well, Add for cider, but you'll be there right, hang on a minute. We've got Trent in the corner, uh, and he's just going to find the. Uh, but it's a beautiful. Yeah, it's got a really nice. long kind of proggy keyboard thing. And the answer nice is, this guy says, "I came in and I did that bit, and that is actually the main bit of the theme tune." So go on YouTube. Um, let's see. Here we go. Find us what. That's it. There we are. That always makes me think of kids in park, of course, running around the streets of Belfast. Instantly, as soon as I hear that. Yeah, like, someone throwing a, throwing a, a brick a at a laundry over. Then, then a shot of a uh, of, of woman in a headscarf yeah. Uh, yeah. near a bag of groceries, yeah. yeah. But I didn't watch that because I was like to make your old kid who's like, oh, what's going on in Beirut? I watched it because on BBC One was some crap like Ask the Family, on BBC Two, uh, the money programme, and as World in Action and that's got the theme tune so I was kind of jemmied into watching World in Action it was kind of pushed in that direction without actually wanting to and I think the thing about like I say it's great for those kids who have that natural reflex creativity but really what we need to do is, do is herd all the children into hours and hours of boredom yeah because some well, of them maybe need, we're doing need to be kicked and forced into I mean maybe we're, we're actually that doing that because um <sighs> Cramp. We've, we've, we've recreated the world, it's a different world now, but I'm sure that it's got just as huge a capacity for being boring. I would have thought, well, ultimately. I mean, we get Bre Brexit into we? the search field of uh, Twitter, and yes, you'll Isn't it, but boredom's like pleasure. Something that's pleasurable does not make, you know, there's a point where you go, oh, I'm a bit bored of this now. Yeah. And and I, I, so I think, yeah, there, there will still be, children still have access to boredom. Yeah. I still think one of the main players in in terms of that is uh, is the uh, inability to uh, effectively kick a ball uh, from the age of eight onwards. I still think that is one of the prime movers for getting into creativity. Is once you find out you can't be part of that. <laughs> it's the moment that, yes. for instance, the the other uh, I've mainly noticed it with boys. They don't mind a kicker until about the age of eight. Suddenly, ineffectual kicking is now an annoyance. Whereas was, before that, it was yeah, play, yeah. and now. The competition has begun. What were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask two quick questions before we better stop it in a minute. But uh, the uh, yeah. um, one is uh, I want to talk about in a void, which I don't think I talked about with you. Is one of the annoying things in in terms of the the, the book that I've just done was that uh, um, all the interviews I had to keep 
to thematic each time for each chapter. So Alan, I asked you about loads of different things, but you're only in the one about imagination, and uh, and then in the same way, social anxiety. I talked about, but inner mm. voices is a thing that I find in terms of the the creative. Because I was talking to a guy called Charles Fernhoff about the fact that uh, he he does a lot of research into voices. That some people have these voices that come into their heads, and uh, they're, they're 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 bad voices. They're 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 impulsive and intrusive thoughts. All of those things mm. that go on, and other and he's trying to use sometimes artistic ways of going how to turn the inner voice. Like they 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 do research where people have got intrusive thoughts. They make an avatar that represents that other voice in their head. So they start to create a personality for, yeah. for that voice. Nina Conti talking to her. You know she does an amazing ventriloquist act. She which I'd always thought ventriloquist. I'd always thought sometimes they look at their dummy and go, oh I don't know what you're saying. But apparently it's the other way around. They spend the whole time going, oh well I've managed to keep the front on. Now I can <laughs> let it out here in this hand puppy. And um, I'm and. I was told about Pat Barker, you know, great novelist uh, Pat Barker, about the fact that she, when she writes novels, basically sits down and then eventually they walk into her head, you know, Siegfried Sassoon, whatever, Mm -hmm. and starts talking. She said, I'm not controlling them at all. I'm just eavesdropping and going, thanks very much. And then they walk out of her head. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested for for both of you about where the voice voice of your, when, when you're creating things, or even when you're not, in fact, you know, suddenly when an idea comes... Are are your voices tangible things? Do they have images and accents in your head? Faces? Well, the, the, I'm a big... I, say I listen to people talk a lot. I use public transport to travel more or less everywhere and uh, I kind of try and find pubs to drink in which don't have jukeboxes and, and things like that. Um, but it's very rarely I'm listening to the idea of kind of Alan Bates... Alan Bennett, rather, sitting on a you know a bench at Earl's Court station and jotting down this great stream of gems that are pouring out of the mouths of the commuters all around. It's not the case at all. We'll get bits, we'll get phrases and lines. What you hear mostly, which is most use, is you hear the way people talk, you hear the rhythms of language, you hear the words which people don't say, and you, it's kind of I find more useful to listen to that. It's it's the kind of the I'd hesitate to say music of language, but it's the way people speak which I find more useful. And then I'll kind of, when I have an idea or a, or a thought, it will. It kind of draws on that. It draws on that. I'd agree that completely that it's it's you don't actually. People always say, "Oh, you know, you you must be writing down things all the time." That you maybe some writers do, mm. but with me, it's more a sort of general absorption of the way people speak and the way people seem to function psychologically and stuff like that. And then when I actually sit down to writing, I mean, I think that it's a huge misconception that people have about writers that they somehow have an idea and then write it down. I think that much more often it's the act of writing itself Mm. that tends to, like Pat Barker was saying, it tends to the characters you think what would they do and they'll tell you what they would do as if they were were real things i mean with the the stuff about voices um i had um a dr turlock mills got in touch with me this was a couple of years ago but he was a part of 
or was interested in a, a movement in psychiatry called the Hearing Voices Movement, mm. uh, which was where people who were troubled or having their lives ruined by these internal voices were encouraged to actually talk to them, see what they want. Um, there was, I remember hearing about one woman who said that, yeah, it's great, um, I've got it now so that they know that they can have an hour before I go to sleep. I'll go to bed at 10 and I'll say, right, you've got an hour. What do you want to say? And so all of her intrusive voices, they will have their audience with her during that hour and leave her alone for the rest of the day. And this guy was getting in touch with me mainly because of my uh, experiments with magic and talking to entities and, and he was asking what was that like um what were your perceptions of that because yeah it might be useful yeah. that sort of the traditional view is that imaginary people inside your head or imaginary entities can't give you any real information because they're hallucinations but i think that Modern psychiatry is moving towards a more sophisticated view that uh, these things, they're intangible, they're not physically real, but psychologically they're real. Um, and they but, might possess insights of your character, which... Yeah, they might be detached parts of you. Mm. That would seem one likely explanation that you cannot normally access. Um... We don't really know what identity or personality is. Uh, we're still struggling with things like um, is uh, is multiple personality disorder a real thing? Some people, the people who suffer from it, seem to say yes it is. Other people seem not so sure. I think mm. this is because we've not really ever approached the fundamental question of what are we? Uh, of our identity so I think that yeah the act of fiction and writing fiction it's a lot subtler than people might imagine it's never quite fiction is it um, no absolutely not no. <laughs> not on any level in my case no see I love that it's not always myself it's other people too it's other people's experiences and stories and there's got to be fragments. a reality there or any fiction it's just going to be a piece of kind of airy fairy nonsense that doesn't connect to anything yeah there's got to be even in the wildest fantasies they've got to be grounded in something in real human experience well one passage in a, in a, in a work of fiction could be the, the product of 20 or 30 experiences mm. and nine or ten stories and six or seven people you've met and it's yep. like all those fragments that are, that, that are kind of in there. I mean the, the characters of Jumpy Baker was um, a lovely man uh, who uh, was a friend of somebody I used to work with who used to go for a drink over his end of town frequently and would run into this this pal of his who was a hopeless alcoholic and um, if you ran into him any time between 12 and 3 o'clock, he was like sort of this intelligent, articulate, warm, sensitive, uh, like sort of thoroughly human being. And we ran into him any time after 5 o'clock, he was a monster, an absolute monster, although recognisably the same 
person, tall yeah. and uh, and manny. It was. Um, but just with something completely different going on inside psychologically. Yeah, yeah, and he would tell me stories. Um, he'd, tell, he'd kind of run into me and tell you a story of something that freshly happened. He'd tell you you're sober, and then you run into him again a couple of weeks later, and he'd tell you the same story after four o'clock. It would be recognisably the same story, but there would be a different inflections, different inflections, and, and yeah, that sort yeah. of the, the hero and the villain would rotate. That's so. That's what I think. Yeah, you know, one of the many great things in in your your book drunk baker is the conflicting realities of the two of them as every now and again around the kind of you know around the oven different mm. bits of information are thrown back and forth and then obviously we hear from the the particular voice of uh um internal voice of, of a single baker but the, the the conflict of when the others say that's not what happened and that's not the way it was with the gaffer and that's not the and yeah the re- i think the revelation that the the short one with the curly hair was, if I've got it right, he's, he was the adopted son of the gaffer and his missus. Fostered for a short, Fostered for a short while. Before he set That's fire to the house. <laughs> yeah, for the arson. Yeah. Again, um, baking perhaps wasn't the right thing, you know, with arson being a habit. <laughs> I, I think that's, that, that bit of where ideas come from, because that, that is one of the common things, isn't it, where people say, where do your ideas come from? And you think, well, if you could actually answer that, then you'd be really fucking rich, because you'd have come up with, you'd have found out what consciousness was. The biggest question of the whole, you know, at the moment, certainly in neuroscience, one of the biggest questions for the whole human is, is what is consciousness? There's a whole industry of never-ending books. So if you one day went, I'll tell you where my ideas come and go, I think the Nobel this, Prize is yours. This is exactly <laughs> what one of the main reasons why I got into magic was because you'd go to some convention or you'd be meeting with some fans and someone would inevitably say, so where do you get your ideas from? And I'd noted that all creative people despise that question and ridicule the people who ask it Mm. um, because they haven't got an answer. Of course they despise that question and they're going to... We don't... Yeah. So I thought, isn't this... Actually, you're making your living out of ideas. Shouldn't you, like, know where ideas come from? Um, I mean, if you were making your living out of cars, you'd want to understand everything about the engine and the People would expect to know that as well. Where's this you, car you from? And sort of, so I can't tell you that. I thought, all right, so where do ideas come from? And I thought, well, this is actually going to take some kind of thinking in areas that are traditionally a bit precarious uh, with magic Mm. and stuff like that and I eventually came up with at least a working model of where ideas might come from I'm not saying this is the truth but I came up with the idea you could treat consciousness as a kind of space Um, I later found that people like Max Planck Mm. Uh, he said that maybe consciousness is a universal attribute that everything in the universe is somehow conscious including us but I I came up with this this idea of idea space just purely to explain to myself some of the experiences that I was having some of the ideas that I was having Um, and I remember I was talking to John Higgs and he said um, 
Yeah, that, that stuff about idea space, he says it's, it's kind of useful, you know. He says that, do you, you realise that that's a, a theory of consciousness? And I, I hadn't, so I was a bit taken aback. And then he said, yeah, do you realise it's the only theory of consciousness? <laughs> and that wasn't what I was setting out to do. And I would have probably thought about it a bit more if I'd realised. But, uh, yeah, we've not really addressed that single question. What is consciousness? We don't know. Consciousness is its own blind spot. Yeah. Well, we've... Uh... We've probably done two podcasts here. We never got. We never even talked about uh, the new, new League of Extraordinary. Uh, no, we don't do that. We we create the real level of. We, it won't be like an episode of uh, Last Summer Wine if we do that. This, you know, this is. Uh, we didn't talk about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. This is uh, yeah, you and and Kevin. The the final. Uh, the the final hurrah. comic work. This yeah. is it. Yeah, it's. We're having a lot of fun with this. It's. Uh, um, for one thing, we're perversely, we're insisting upon doing it as six floppy comic books because you're not going to be seeing them for much longer. It no longer works as an economic business model. They're much too expensive for children to buy. These things, I, I think on the, uh, we've got a, I've got a cover here from yeah, um, one of the issue five, which is... Uh, we're doing all of them like um, British comics uh, that we remember. And this one is a, it's one of those old Alan Class reprints from the 50s and 60s where they would reprint pre-code American horror stories. Yeah. Um, with kind of under a, a, a new British cover. Um, it's yeah we're having lots of fun with with all of this and oh, you notice that on the front here of this we've got <laughs> the price which this would have once been one and six or something like that this is 85 shillings which is actually the current price that it will cost you to actually buy this comic book they're not for kids anymore so what me and Kevin are trying to do is to get absolutely everything that we ever thought was great about comics and somehow cram it all in to these last six issues um, along with a kind of commentary about where we think comics have gone disastrously wrong and why we can't bear to spend another moment in the industry. So bittersweet, I suppose, would be the uh, the brief summary. Well, I've been, sorry. I was just going to say, I mean, where, where do you think that they've gone wrong? Oh, we haven't got that kind of time. Well, in, in a sentence. In a sentence. <laughs> I think that they started, to, I think they went wrong when they were no longer aimed uh Basically, they went wrong when they went badly wrong in the eighties when um, there were all of those articles saying Bamsock Powell comics have grown up when they hadn't. Mm. They had just met the emotional age of the audience coming the other way, and basically that uh, validated uh, a lot of people who 
they were getting into their 30s, their 40s, they felt embarrassed about still being addicted to Green Lantern. And so basically things like Watchmen gave them, they could say, oh, these are graphic novels. They're uh, for adults. No, they're not for adults. They're for, well, or if they are for adults, they're for perhaps arrested adults. That sort of, this is entertainment for children that people have become addicted to mm. and don't want to let go of. Uh, I think that when the comics business stopped being a brilliant fuel for kids' imaginations and started being some kind of addictive crutch that sort of uh, we I mean at the moment it's completely overrun by superheroes when people think comics they think superheroes yeah as if the two were interchangeable and there is that weird thing that uh, I I took my son to see one of the Marvel films the other day Ant-Man and the Wasp and they're all 12A they should be 12A because they should be, but anyway, the um, it's brilliant. That I've only seen the first one so far, which has a celebration also of Leo Baxendale and has a beautiful uh, that slightly shoddy British comic uh, superheroes uh, towards the end of uh, your classics illustrated uh, the Tempest. Um, I will, uh, Barney Drunken Baker is it's brilliant. It's a really fantastic. Thank it's, you. It's available now, and and it's an amazing. Uh, monologue, and I was saying the other book I was going to that I've been reading it, is you could do something amazing with your life. You are Raoul Moat. Yeah, which, this uh, sounds incredible. Which is an incredible, which is basically a, a, a journalist going into the mind of the last seven days of Raoul Moat. And uh, um, I, I had to remember which one I was reading. This one's like this is the Baker's. This it's it's an, it's, it's an incredible bit of work by James. Uh, that's the mic falling, but that's yeah. all real. Um, Jay, and now, now Trent runs in to go. Is it still on? Uh, James Hankinson. It's 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 a very interesting book. Um, and so yeah, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. There are uh, that that is. What are you up to now? Which one? Which one's out in the shops uh, now? Is it number two or? There's number two for you. Ooh. And there's number one and two for Cheers. you. Cheers. Oh, and number two. Black and white. Yeah. And uh, Aping TV Twenty One. I remember the excitement of buying old copies of that. Uh, yeah, at the Westminster it's, Comic it's a good issue. It's sort of that, that's just uh, I'm just writing number six at the moment, uh, so I'm on my, I think what last nineteen pages of comics ever, which is uh, a strange feeling. This is an event. This is an event in the. Well, he's still not being. He, he, he promised us that he was going to. Uh, to write a book that was longer than the Bible, and it turned out Jerusalem was merely longer than the Old Testament. So he's got a lot of uh, yeah. a lot of work to be done, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, I know. The, I new know. Nest, the New Testament's pretty slim, Tom, and you can knock that off in an afternoon. Then. I was reading the Book of Revelation again the other day. Though. That's that is a humdinger of. Uh, now, who um, does that, Robin? Who does that? Who reads the Book of Revelation? <laughs> pop the kettle on the other day. Uh, uh, the trouble is, I I got this fantastic album. It's more than one album. It's many albums of Johnny Cash reads the New Testament, and uh, it really got me. If you got Johnny cash reading the new testament you wow. don't have to be religious to no, go well this is a nice way to uh, to end the day thank you very much for listening thank you uh, very much
much to uh, Barney and Alan. As I said, Drunken Baker is out now. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, issue two is uh, is in the shops. If you're in London, go to Gosh Comics. Or and try Robin's and brilliant book is out now. And of course, yeah, Robin's brilliant book. We didn't get much chance. Uh, to talk and about. Uh, my book, I'm a joke. So you is out, and we're doing on the first of November in London at uh, King's Place. I'm going to be doing an event with uh, Stuart Lee, who uh, also wrote the forward to the book, and with Josie will be there as well. If Josie's not there, Alan will be there standing in for <laughs> Josie uh, and Philippa Perry and Grace Petrie and I'm currently off touring around uh, the UK for about 60 dates so go to robinintz.com uh, to find out those dates or go to Cosmic Shambles to find other things. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for supporting us on Patreon. If you are one of those fine people, thanks very much for uh, heading to patreon.com slash bookshambles right now to become one of our supporters. Uh, If not, please do give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Uh, Spread the word on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that. It really helps us out. And we'll be back on Thursday with another episode, which is uh, going to be one we recorded live recently, Book Shambles, uh, hosted by Josie Long with special guest Robin Ince, uh, chatting about Robin's new book. So look out for that on Thursday. Until then, enjoy your week, and uh, hopefully we will see you at some live events soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.